Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I am your host, Ben Myers, my co-host, Mr. Stephen Cameron. How's it going, Steve? It's going great. Good to be back, Ben. How you doing? Great. It's 2021. The world is locked down again, so we are uh, back virtually podcasting. So yeah. uh, that's fun. That Apologies fun. for the uh, the the not as perfect quality that we were getting used to over the last few episodes. Our uh, IT skills were really coming along, Ben and I. But anyways, back on Zoom. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you someone that does have perfect quality stuff, and that's. Our sponsor, Nizo Studios. The award-winning Nizo Studios is a premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural, visualization, and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center, physically or virtually. Visit nizostudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling taking the building's industry sales process by storm. So let's uh, let's jump right into it, Ben. We've got a phenomenal guest today, and I'm super excited to uh, to introduce today's guest. Not only uh, someone well recognized and uh, reputable in the industry, but uh, comes from one of the major players as, as far as uh, development in Toronto. And uh, today's guest is Andrea Delzato from Tridel. Uh, for those who don't know Andrea Delzato, she's an executive, obviously, with the company, a director of the board, and a member of the founding family. In her role, Delzato focuses on governing the key brand drivers for Tridel, including people, culture, customer experience, innovation, community, corporate social responsibility, and communications, while ensuring alignment across all companies within the group. A visionary leader, Delzato initiates and drives the change necessary throughout the organization to maintain and build upon Tridel's commitment to market leadership. And with that, please join me in welcoming Andrea to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for joining us. How did uh, how how did I do on the intro? Nailed it, I think. Yeah, you did. It, it's a lot. Yeah, I felt uh, I have to be a great. I'll accept it graciously. You said wonderful things. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you have, you have lots of responsibilities. There, so, so tell us. We we always like to start the show and and uh, a bit of the conversation about maybe even pre Tridel. Obviously. Um, you know, like like I mentioned, from the founding family. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, and um, a little bit of the history leading into your time uh, at Tridel and where you are today. Sure. I grew up in Thornhill, uh, which, you know, as a child, that felt like really, really far away from Toronto, but now everything seems so much closer. <laughs> so Thorn, you know, Thornhill doesn't seem so far away anymore. Um, things are different. The cities feel, even though it's grown, it feels more connected. Um, I was the youngest of four kids and we had two brothers, uh, two older brothers and an older sister. So being the youngest, I'm sure you have your own interpretation of where, where uh, birth order Falls, you know, what my personality might be, what my strengths are. There's an ongoing debate in my family. I have three hmm. boys, and uh, they tend to think wherever they land in the birth order is uh, has its disadvantages. So anyway, I was the youngest of four. Um, I have three siblings as well, so a lot to relate uh, to and a lot maybe to talk about there. 
Where do you fall in the birth order? I'm, uh, I have an older sister, and then I have two younger sisters. Oh. I'm the only boy, too. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it kind of actually is funny. Everybody who knew us growing up always would say, yeah, you have you know three siblings, but you're the only boy, so it's kind of like being an only child. I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I'm the only, I'm the only uh, female in this house. So there's uh, three, yeah, three boys and my husband. So I'm outnumbered. I know what that feels like. Yeah, I was outnumbered my whole life. Yeah. So, um, so I went to school um, for post-secondary at Western. And I studied sociology. And I really fell in love with learning how people live. And I didn't necessarily think that would be a direct path to our family business and you know condominium development. But after a lot of contemplation and weighing the pros and the cons, I thought really it's very well aligned with what we do um, because it's not just buildings. It's how people live and how we can impact that, not just in a building and in a community, but on a larger scale in the city. So I considered it a great opportunity. And uh, that's why I am there today. And there was never really any pressure or obligation to join as a family business um the you know the the lines were always blurred with a family business um mm -hmm. family dinner table was business talk so i got exposed to it non-stop um i know you know i, I talk thinking about we were talking maybe about some early projects that i was involved in and i'm like there was no first project because i was just dragged around by my dad to construction sites on the weekends I was like the girl that my favorite smells were sawdust and paint. So hmm. that, that was it, right? Um, but yeah, so that's where I landed. And I think it was, you know, probably predetermined, but I'm happy where I am. So tell us a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think this is it's probably a good history lesson for myself, for Ben, and for all the listeners. But take us back to the first days of Friedel. It was your father who founded the company, but it wasn't alone, right? Oh, well, okay, so that's an interesting story because we we are an 85-year young company. Okay. But my father lived to 89 this summer. So, I mean, if you do the math, right, it really stems back to my grandfather who was building homes. And he okay. came from, from northern Italy. He was a stonemason. He started building. And he actually taught my father how to build. With You know, my father actually built homes with his own hands. And he was not the most scholarly student. He was a great athlete, but he didn't finish high school. He said uh, he was drafted for the NHL. He was one of the greatest hockey players. He went and tried that. And he said, you know what? I can kind of do better and more meaningful work and uh, help my dad. And he came back and he focused on building homes. And then, you know, his father would buy a lot and build a house. And he thought, what if I divide that lot into four and build four homes instead of one? And then I think from there, it only went up, right? And he started, yeah. they started learning how to do uh, condos in the late 60s. And that's um, him and his brothers. And then their fourth partner, Harvey, really um, got into high-rise by the 70s. That's a great legacy. And uh, like you said, your father passed away this past summer. But I'm sure that, you know, like I said, his legacy and his name lived on. And, and uh, something that I'm sure you are excited to continue to celebrate and instead of like you said at the beginning maybe you know not talk about it but I'm sure it's, it's something that you're very proud of and he was someone you were proud of he sounds like a great man yeah I'm glad to talk about it people maybe are nervous and shy away from it but I think that keeps people's memories and legacy alive and really he was my greatest mentor right so we shared an office 
um, because of lockdown, I'm not so lonely in that office anymore without him because I'm at home. Um, but really, you know, I think a, a couple of weeks ago, someone brought a potential development opportunity to my attention. And my first instinct was like, I'm going to call my dad. I want to talk, get his, get his opinion. Right. Cause he could really see a vision for, for dirt. And then I'm like, I don't have that anymore. Yeah. Um, so there comes a time where you just, you know, you take the learnings that you've had and you continue to build on them and trust yourself. And he trusted in me. So, you know, a couple of years ago, he put me in his place on the board. Uh, so he had the confidence and, uh, I, I trust in that a lot, but I continue to, uh, to develop myself. There's a lot to learn. Even if you yeah. grow up in the business, there's an overwhelming amount to learn still. Well, why don't we, um, just a, a quick overview of, of who Tridel is. I don't think anyone listening doesn't know who Tridel is. You guys are the, you know, the biggest player in the high rise industry in the GTA, but, uh, you know, want to give us a little bit of a synopsis of who you are now, uh, as opposed to the, uh, the, the 1960s first high rise building first high rise condo builder. Sure. So I like that because I never want to make the assumption that everybody knows who we are. Um, we are probably one of the largest privately held residential real estate groups in Canada. And people think of us mostly as condominium developers, obviously, from start to finish. So we have our development sales construction team, which sounds strange, but a lot of developers don't build their own buildings and they outsource a lot of that. So we do all of that internally. And we also have a group of companies that are vertically integrated, such as our property management division. We have a rental arm. We have long-term furnished suites and also retirement homes. So there's, you know, we, we created companies where we saw a need. And uh, I think they'll continue to be recognition of where there's gaps that need to be filled and hopefully continue to grow in that regard. So how many, how many uh, projects under construction or how many units under construction or is that uh, well, too granular? <laughs> That's also a great question. We usually, you know, one of the big things I would mention is that we have Tridel, which is the condominium side and the brand. And then we have our GC uh, company, which is Delterra. So they would build um, for third party. We build, uh, you know, there's about 3,000 rental units under construction. Um, but at any given time, I would say there could be 30 projects at various stages under construction. Wow. Wow. And you guys will, you'll build for rental developers. You won't build for other condo developers. So, right. Correct. Right. Right now that's, <laughs> that's how we operate right now. And what about yeah, the low rise yeah. side? Is there still a, a division of uh, single family homes, townhomes, stacked towns, or is that business no longer? Not so much, but you know, we, nobody, nobody knows what the future holds and we always position ourselves to say we're builders. So if we need to pivot, we can build anything. We, yeah. we, we built commercial, we've built retail, uh, we, we built townhomes and stacked. Um, it's not what we focus on now, but fortunately we have a broad skill set that if we had to do something differently, uh, we're able to. So before we, before we keep going on, uh, the, the Tridel evolution, you, you did mention that you have, uh, three siblings and it is a family business. So are the, are the other, fam are the other siblings still involved in the business or is there any other family, uh, running Tridel with you or how is that all shaken out? Well, there's, you know, there's three brothers and a fourth partner and, uh, uh, of, of the next generation, there's really only two of us there right now, um, every day. And, uh, from my family, yes, I, I wouldn't say I joke. I wouldn't say I was the chosen one, 
because we, I know we'll talk about this being still a very male dominated industry, but I have one of my, I still have a question, you know, not so surprisingly that, is your brother coming back? Because he lives in Vegas. And I said, uh, no, it's me. I've been, been here for a while now. So, uh, this is, you know, what you see is what you get <laughs> and it's not a man. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So who wants to go in Vegas? He, um, he was building residential and then he turned to commercial and he's doing retail, which is obviously uh, evolving as we speak and you know, challenging to get through these times right now. But, uh, yeah. but as a family, you know, as, as a family office kind of, you learn to, he's in the loop because you have to have good communication. So yeah. that, that exists, even though he's not hands-on and um, my sister as well, you've, you know, you're st you still feel a sense of belonging, and so you've got to have good communication, at least an awareness of what the company's doing. So that's part of my responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah, managing the family oh. relationships, um, it's, uh, it's never easy, but it's very important. Yeah. I think if you can handle it and you do communicate properly and everyone feels like they have a, a sense of what's going on and a purpose and peace of mind, it, it allows for smooth sailing for the most part. For sure. For the most part, it's still family, a complicated yeah. word. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've definitely been reading ahead in our in our questions. We we gave you some of the questions we wanted to ask in advance. So so why don't we get to this one that you kind of mentioned a little bit? And it's uh, it's a two part question. And um, you know, we operate in the male dominated industry. And I guess the first part of the question is, do you think that needs to change? And secondly, um, you know, it's a male dominated. Is it male dominated because females are not getting those opportunities or is it because you know they're discouraged or not encouraged to get into the, the, the business or do they simply have no interest in it, you know mm -hmm. I think there's a bit of a, um, a hybrid to that answer so Jeff I think real estate is one of those industries I think in one of the newsletters I read recently it's it's typically been you know known for being handed down to male heirs in, in their families. And uh, that's changing, obviously. I think in terms of women overall in the industry, 100% it needs to change. And I think one of the main reasons is um, the profession should really reflect our society. And when you think of one of the purposes of real estate, it's to create a built form that can meet the needs of the stakeholders. So if you don't have equal rep, you know, hopefully equal representation on the team, um, how can you deliver communities that, that meet the needs of everybody. So I think even in the building sciences, we're starting to see improvement, whether it's in the skilled trades, whether it's in architecture, et cetera, engineering, you're starting to see more uptake with women. I think they're being um, more accepted. I think there's more opportunities. I see more innovation around women getting involved in the industry. Um, and I think it's an expectation and a requirement now. I think, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion not just women, but any underrepresented groups in this industry, um, we're being called on it if we don't try to walk, walk the talk, right? Because I think leadership team of, of our industry uh, and the, the companies in our industry, I think any leadership team actually, you inherently have these blind spots, right? So you might think 40% of our, of our employees are women. Okay, well, what positions are they in? And what's the composition of that 40%? Do you have diversity in that? So I really think um, the conversation has been, had a, had a spotlight shone on it. I think it's a great thing uh, because I think at the end of the day, you have to 
deliver products and, and communities that are going to meet the needs of everybody living there. And I look at countries like, um, well, take Vienna, for example, right? They have something called gender mainstreaming. I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with it, but it's no. really, yeah, it's making sure the infrastructure and the services of a city can be experienced and enjoyed equally by men and women. And they make sure that they have representation of women in the policy side, in the resources that are being invested in real estate. So it's a big step. And I mean, it sounds, it sounds small, and I think that's another place where we can have blind spots. But when they looked at how people experience the city, whether it be the sidewalks, whether it be the parks, um, you look at the UN's Initiative for Safe Cities campaign, where I think Canada right now has two sponsor cities, um, Winnipeg and Calgary. And I think I want Toronto to be one of those cities, right? There's, and uh, so that's where I think having more female participation in this industry is a great thing. And that's a way to actually continue to innovate the space. You said an interesting thing, and you mentioned it two or three times about blind spots. And I remember when, um, you know, just different industry, but uh, when Kyle Dubas, the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs, hired Haley Wickenheiser as uh, part of the professional uh, scouting and management team, you know, he was asked quite a bit about that, you know, what are the first female executives in the organization? And he said, it's crazy to think that we can do this and be good at it and not know what blind spots we actually have. And he kept referring to, to blind spots and to just, you know, it needs to be, you know, we need to look at this from every angle in order to be the best of the best, which we need to be, you know, we'd be crazy not to get opinions of different people from different walks of life and different backgrounds. And, you know, her, her experience is going to be a lot different than just hiring a bunch of guys out of the NHL. So anyway, I find that, uh, you know, the whole, building an organization and, and building out the right uh, capabilities. Yeah. You know, and I just, it just, I was, sorry to interrupt. I was going to, I'm learning, like the more you, it's like when you get that new car and all of a sudden you see that new car everywhere on the road beside you. Right. right. So I'm, I'm very aware of this now and I'm, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised at the things I'm seeing pop up. So there's this new hashtag. I don't know how new it is actually, but um, you know, hashtag, I think it's move over Bob. You know, Bob the Builder, I'm revealing my age now, but Bob the Builder. So that's like a trending hashtag. I haven't really dug too far into it. And then there's a company in LA called Dirty Girl Construction. I'm like, great. These are all really good things that I'm hearing about. There's an accelerator. um, It's in the States called Sweeten, where they're giving exposure to female GCs, making sure that the work is equally, you know, absorbed by men and women. So it's just really, really nice to see. You mentioned earlier your favorite uh, smell was sawdust and paint. You grew up on the construction site. What's uh, what's one of your earliest memories? I know obviously it's been great in your in your being really probably since as long as you can remember. But give us uh, give us a story or a memory of of you know actually working on a project or one of your okay. favorite projects. Uh, yeah. Today. Something that really um, it really stands out in very early days. Well, there's there's many obviously, but if I th- Northtown. So at Young and Finch, yeah. I, I started working there part-time on the weekends. Um, I was in an admin, in an admin role. And, and I just remember that whole sales office experience was theatrical, literally, right? We had a movie theater. Um, we, it was just, and that, and before that kind of, tr- you know, very popular term now, the user experience and human centric, that's what we were. And that was like 35 years ago, right? Maybe, right? 30 years ago. Um, 
So that was really, we were not the first ones to build a condo, but we were the first ones to put lifestyle in a condo, like bowling alleys and swimming pools and billiards and, you know, yeah. uh, putting, right? Uh, like a putting range. But so I just thought we really, that really did go to show me that we really did put people first. Um, and whether or not someone, we have the mindset and the philosophy that whether someone is buying a home from us as an investment or to live in themselves, we don't, we, we don't discriminate, right? We just treat it like someone is going to eat, live, sleep in, in that home, right? It's not a floor plan. It's not a black line. It's a home. And so putting that person at the center of it all from the first time before they even, you know, when they're thinking of purchasing a home, that experience is focused on the user, which, so that really stands out in my mind as one of the firsts. And then really uh, the technology side, we were, we created our proprietary software. Um, it was called team at the time, Tridel electronic access management. And that was before CRM or anything, but really just to know the customer intimately and uh, be able to provide, uh, you know, seamless, low friction um, relationship with them, let low frustration, just make everything um, optimal. That was, that kind of sticks out in my mind as well. Where are you at today with that? Because I know innovation is a big part of who you are in the brand. If you look on your website, it sticks out probably four or five, in four or five different places. Um, but if you go back to, you know, the, the early creating a lifestyle, creating a brand, you know, that's obviously evolved over the last 30 years, you know, maybe not as many bowling alleys today as there are maybe daycares and uh, pet grooming stations and different condos. But what, yeah. what are you seeing as far as, you know, the lifestyle in condos from today to 2030? Well, it's all from now to, I mean, the, the past 11 months have changed it drastically, yeah, right? So uh, the innovation isn't always the technology in the building, right? I think over five years ago, I read, I read an article about, you know, putting, putting a property manager and amenities in a building are not enough, right? You've got to program your spaces. And I think we're seeing that now more than ever. But innovation, yes, it will always have um, a part of it that's technology. And a lot of that will will be influenced by our kind of pillar of sustainability and delivering a home that has, uh, you know, a sensitive footprint, a sensitive environmental um, footprint. But the innovation can also be in new models of home ownership and things such as that, right? Um, so we have a beautiful smart suite that's on the market in February available at 10 York. I, I encourage everybody to look at the Tridel website and check that out. I mean, there's a lot of cool innovation um, Tell us a little just, bit about it because I was looking at it too and I had a lot of questions I was going to ask those through the part two test yeah. about 10 York. The, probably but, the most, the thing will get you most out of the comfort zone is like the, the glass that becomes, is transitional glass that becomes opaque when you go to the washroom and then becomes clear when you're not. And I, you know, I don't know if I'm ready to trust that yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> I actually saw that on, uh, I think it was AJ was showing me a video. And he was in it and he was showing me like, I think you touch the glass or something like that and it goes opaque and then it goes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But you know, okay. So last week was consumer electronics show, right? Usually yeah. I'll go every once or every, maybe two years I try to go to Vegas to that show. It seems like nobody really goes to the home home builder show because there's so much about homes at the C at CES. Um, so obviously it was virtually this year, but one of the big takeaways for me was that, you know, we're all, we're on lockdown the innovation and the technology has not helped our everyday responsibilities and burdens at all. 
right? It's nice to ha- it's nice to be able to to control your bulbs and your blinds um, and maybe have the glass. But at the end of the day, I see we're all kind of drowning at home with these responsibilities overlapping each other. Um, and that's where I'd like to see the innovation happen. And, you know, I've been seeing uh, a, an automated folding machine for laundry at CES for five years. It does, I still can't get it. <laughs> so somebody create something that makes those tasks a little bit easier. So, so you're my, we, all, we all need robots is what you're trying to say. Yeah. We need uh, yeah. we need less laundry is what I'm trying yeah. to say. If, if, your, if, your next con- yeah, if your next condo comes with a robot that can take care of my kids, then uh, that would be. Uh, <laughs> I know that I, I've read about that. I know. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, so something. I mean, the innovation is not just going to be in the things that we're used to seeing. The innovation. I hope it gets a little more creative. Um, on, the, on the on the COVID side, are you are you making any changes to you know to have a you know, a quiet room or somewhere to, 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 to zoom, a zoom room or, exactly. uh, you know, yeah. anything like that, or, or is there any changes you need to make on the air circulation in the units to keep them airtight? Or, I mean, I, yeah. I, I know nothing about that, but it's just something that comes to mind, right? But no, you're, uh, you're right on. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the, um, the, the high tech person with the innovation as well, but, but, you know, 30,000 feet. Yes, we are. We've made changes, obviously. Uh, the filtration, inc- I mean, we're always interested in the building envelope and making that tighter and making sure there's fresh air in the building. So we've been, and also separating the corridors from the suites. So there's no passage of the airs and contamination, etc. cetera. Um, even something as simple as odors escaping, right? So that there's less um, intrusion, I guess, when you have a home that's maybe 300 people sharing space. So uh, there's also the pivot to kind of low touch, right? Either people are, people say that even in retail, they're never going to want to pick up a pen and sign anything anymore, right? Like we just want low touch, um, voice activated. Um, I laugh at my, my mom's condo. They just did a elevator modernization. So it's a really nice new elevator. And I see people taking their keys. I know this is just audio, but they're pushing the buttons, the new panel with their keys because they don't want to touch it. And I'm like, oh. Thought, like just it's a shift right and how people are thinking so yes there's uh, low touch there's obviously things like zoom room and also wellness spaces a lot more wellness spaces we have a lot of greenery so if you um you know if you don't have a huge terrace um or balk or balcony i mean most have balconies but if you don't then there's shared green spaces that are just I think it's just so important we've seen over the pandemic to have those areas where you can retreat to and get outside your own interior space, right? You have to have those shared spaces that are yeah. outside. Yeah. yeah, and make them a big change, sorry, is to make them all seasonal. I mean, we live in Canada. Don't give me a rooftop amenity that I can only use for three months of the year, right? Or one or two. One or two. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah no, I, I agree. That's a great idea. How, how do you, uh, I guess this is sort of off, uh, off the real estate topic, but just, you know, the pandemic is here. Obviously we're in a second phase of, of this extreme lockdown. What's sort of your, you know, if you had some a crystal ball in terms of what the future looks like, obviously, you know, we are rolling out vaccinations, but I don't think that necessarily means we're out of the thick of things here. Is this, are, are the impacts of COVID here to stay forever or are we going to be back in the office and back to normal in, in 12 months? 
I can I can give you my prediction. Um, um, we it's so funny because someone asked my dad that, and I was on a call with him in in the summer, and they said, "What do you think Toronto's going to look like after?" You know, and he said, "It's a great city. I'm not giving up on Toronto. Like we love the city." And I think I think if you look at previous pandemics people aren't going to shun cities. I know there's been an increase in people moving to more rural areas and maybe single family, but I, I think the the amenities and the conveniences of urban living, I really don't think are going to um, lose that much appeal. And uh, so that's my prediction. I think, I, I, you know, I, we as, as developers, we never think in terms of weeks or months, obviously, right? Everything is so long-term, you think five to eight years. So um, otherwise we'd be, be very nervous, but we're, we're cautiously optimistic about the future. And uh, all the indicators that we're looking at, even the December resale prices, the digital metrics that we're looking at, because obviously people aren't coming into sales offices, they're positive. They're, there's reason for optimism. Definitely. Good answer. I like that. I feel the same way. And I think that we need to be optimistic about the future. And we, we live in a fantastic city and, and it's crazy to think that it's going anywhere. Yeah. And I just have to add, I mean, for my, for my um, dynamic at home with three kids learning from home and working from home and um, my partner working from home and he's teaching 30 other students from home. It's like <laughs> something's going to blow. Something's yeah. gonna, <laughs> not going to last. We can't sustain this. It happens right? already. So you're telling us that it's been smooth sailing the first 11 months. Yeah. Um, but back to the, you know, when I think of um, my husband is a teacher at inner city Scarborough and some of those, some of those students in the pandemic, we just saw they did not have. So I talk about amenities. I think of connectivity, right? Number one. It's, it's no longer a swimming pool. So the connectivity and the signal you get in your, in your home and they're making that, um, let, you know, it can't have the disruptions to service that have been acceptable somewhat. And I think it's an essential service. I mean, we couldn't get, we couldn't improve our connectivity during lockdown and we were, we were having disruptions. So some of those students of his, my point is they didn't get outside for four months. Yeah. They did not like, they were scared. Um, they didn't have the connectivity of the devices. So a lot of, you know, I think there has been um, some positives, obviously. So looking at the equity, um, the equity perspective and, you know, we're new, we're new home builders, but when you look at what's out there, um, we have to make sure that there's a way for people to live under these circumstances. Well, good point. Um, well, maybe just get back to, um, to try Dell. I mean, I've, I've gone on many of these OHBA and, and build tours and, and gone to many of your projects. And I've always been, you know, immensely impressed by, by the quality of all the buildings. I have a quick question. You know, what, what's the secret? Are you, are you hiring more people? Are you, uh, um, you know, hiring the right people or, or is it, you know, you have your own construction company, you can control more things. What do you think the secret is to, to building such a high quality, high quality product? Uh, I, th I think a lot of it is the, I think it's the philosophy, the values that we have, and also the expectation on us, right? The brand recognition. So when we put our name on something, there's an expectation that it's going to have a certain level of quality. Um, we have, we hire great talent and uh, 
you know, perception is reality. So when you walk in a building, you might not live in a trial building, but when you walk in it, you get to experience it even as a guest. So even our, you know, you think of the construction, the quality of our construction, and uh, I've, I've seen some of our training um, and onboarding, and we make reference to, you know, Steve Jobs learning from his father that the inside of a cabinet, you're not going to use a really crappy piece of material and make it ugly. Aesthetically, it's got to be beautiful even when it's invisible to someone. So when someone opens their, their vanity, you know, their cabinet in their bathroom, they're not going to see rough edges and that it's got to be people's expectations are really high. And um, I think it's going to become even more so. So we have to deliver on that. And also when we work with designers, for example, um, and some of the, the common areas and amenities in our building, we work with designers that share that mindset and they're, they don't tell us what to do. They work very collaboratively with us because we, we manage 75,000 homes. So we get to see how people live and what we built. And that is a real, that is a real advantage, right? I mean, it's, it's like we say every building is a Petri dish and we get to build it better each time because we don't just walk away from it. So um, it's a real opportunity to do, it, it's a responsibility and it's an opportunity to build it better next time. But it's, it's not by accident, right? It's, it's talent, it's studying what we have and learning from it and, and executing on that next time around. You said that you, you manage 75,000 homes. Is that 75,000 apartments or does that include retirement? What is that? What is that's that made condominium. Up? That's condominiums exclusively. We manage 70,000. Uh, 70, okay, so you have your own condo corp. Yeah, the management. Correct? It's the management company. So there's a relationship there um, where when we turn over a community, um, our property management is, is put in place but they're only permitted to stay there until the building actually turns over and then most of the residents move in, at which point they have the opportunity to put in whatever management company they choose to. That being, my point is that we're there by merit, right? Because of, like I said, we have to have consistency across the group. So if the service expectation at Tridel and the quality of construction is you know, so high, it's going to be that high with the management of your condominium. Right. So fortunately, when the, you know they earn, they earn their um, their stay at a at a condominium corporation. Would you guys put your management team into, or uh, is it management corp into another building, or would you only manage your own? We condo? do manage other other buildings. Yes. Oh really? Yeah, I would say it's it's equally split. So we obviously you have specific develop, developers you'll work with, or is it, or I guess. I guess I can't ask you the specific developers you won't work with because you probably won't answer that. <laughs> I will say though, um, you choose your customers. So some, you know, you 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 become selective. So some are some are probably difficult to manage, and you live and learn. But um, the you know, a lot of other developers will come to us to manage, and uh, we do have that you know that affiliation with like Tridel, where there's it's a Dell property management or um, Dell Rentals, it could be looked at as a, as a as a pro or a con, right? But because they are operated independently, so to speak, and have their own professional management, they've uh, earned their keep and they they're there on their own merit. These I assume the Dell Property Management obviously manages all your apartments as well. No, that um, the rental buildings that we do, um, they're managed not by Dell Property Management. Dell Property um, Management is only condominiums. Okay, do you have your yeah. own management company for the apartments? Um, no, we do not. The, the client would choose their management. Um, but we do have uh, uh, another subsidiary company called DMS, 
which is Dell Management Solutions, and they do management of rental buildings. Okay. Yeah. And what about, not, the, uh, yeah. And what about the retirement business? So you, you mentioned uh, sort of just tying it all in together, but obviously that that's a high, a more hands-on management. Uh, you know, the quality needs to be there. And then, you know, maybe mix in COVID the last 11 months. That's got to be something you guys have spent a lot of time talking and thinking about. A lot. And, and uh, a real advantage there was they put some of the, the safety measures in place before anywhere else and before they were mandated to do so. And that was, you know, IP that they were able to share across the group of companies so we could really get a head start even on construction sites, right? Um, obviously, a very, a very vulnerable environment. And, uh, yeah, it's just kept us on our toes. And, uh, yeah, we're still, yeah. No, nobody's in the clear. We're still in the thick of it. So. No, for sure. Do you guys have a? Do you have plans to grow that business? I know that it being, you know, there's a there's a high population of baby boomers. I would say um, there's. I would say there would definitely be um be a, a customer for that business, a growing need. <laughs> so it, uh, I can't see it doing anything but growing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think just a, a quick question that I thought of based off of what you were you were talking about a, a question earlier. I get asked from my clients all the time, you know, to recommend amenities within within a building. And I'm a, you know, I'm a data analyst, but the recommendations I make for, you know, the amenities that are included in a building are really just keeping up with the Joneses type of stuff. Okay. This, these three guys are doing that, or this guy's doing that. Now with everything Bob entered, do you actually, you know, keep, uh, you know, track or track any data and how much the, you know, the, the exercise rooms getting used, the, the pool and some of the older projects, the bowling alley or the golf simulator or the, the yeah. games room or the pet spa? Is there, is, is there, is there data that you're tracking on these things to see if they're actually getting used? Huh? I would say it's, it's been a very manual process um, up until recently. And we're in our infancy with being able to have meaningful insights from that data. But it's very valuable. The focus so far, and it's gotten easier to get the insights from the technology that's been put in those amenity spaces, right? Um, but the, the focus has really been on the privacy and making sure there's no cyber threats, especially at a building like 10 York, where it's a smart building and everything is connected. And, you know, again, it's no accident that it took so long to get a smart building because common area spaces, private residences, right? Putting those two together is no easy task. Um, so, and, and you're, you, you know, it's, I had the analogy once that it's almost like you have a home and you're putting in, you're put with, with IOT, you're putting in a bunch of windows and a bunch of extra doors and you don't necessarily have locks on them all. So how do you make people feel safe? Cause you're not controlling it. You're not the only, you're not, you're not building the puzzle anymore. There's so many other pieces and other producers and manufacturers that are putting products into your homes. So at the end of the day, they're gonna point their finger at us if there's any problems. So we have to really, we've been heavily focused on the security aspect of all of that data um, before we can really um, start to act on it and and revise, I guess, the designs. And But it's, it's an important piece because I think people's, again, expectations of the amenities that you're putting in their buildings um, they're going to change. And we've seen during COVID, a lot of the amenities are closed. And there's a level of frustration, understandably, with not being able to use them, and you're paying for them. Oh, I can't imagine. I, I, it's frustrating. I'd be so frustrated. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. I, I, I feel for them. And I think, I think just the, 
the mindset we're having right now, just the generation that's coming even more so, but you're seeing evolution even in how people use gyms, right? We used to buy a year-long membership, then we'd buy 10 classes, right? It's non-committal. We don't really, so I think there's a pay-per-use mentality that's coming, and I think we're going to have to look at addressing that and and putting yeah. in pieces that actually make sense to what people want to use, not not cookie-cutter amenities that just, the, the, the I go to the Ace Hotel in New York. I mean, not recently. <laughs> <laughs> but I walk into a lobby there, and I see I, there's just a vibe, right? And I'm like, that's what I want to see. I want to see people together. And I mean, that pre-COVID even, I'd want to see that. Ironically, during the pandemic, I, I've gone to some of our communities, and I've seen the, amenit- the lobby spaces being used more than ever. Like, when it wasn't under strict lockdown, because people want to, I think, get out of their, their suites and their homes and into a common space. And I was seeing them be more utilized. And that, I mean, that was a bright side. I was happy to see that. So how do we make them more engaging and inviting? Why, why is this, I just thought about this right now, and I, <laughs> I've never thought about it before. But all these uh, great bars that we have in Toronto, a lot of them are in the lobbies of hotels. So if you walk around Yorkville, you know, a number of the best restaurants um, are in the basement of a hotel. But why, why has no developer had a lobby bar in their condo? Have you ever thought about that or am I onto I'm, something here? I'm, I'm sure there's a million reasons why it can't be done, but we have to look for the million and one reasons why it should be done and can't. Yeah. Well, you, I've seen restaurants. Like there's definitely been restaurants in, but I'm yeah. just sort of saying like the lobby bar, you know, you could have like even like a, yeah, you, why not use the lobby space as a more, you know, yeah. welcoming area that people congregate. I guess maybe yeah. one of the reasons is safety. You don't want strangers coming into your lobby. Yeah, I'm sure there's there's definitely a fine line. Um, but I I also foresee making some sellable space shareable space. I really do. And I think uh, I think you might get um, a different reception to new developments in a community if if there's more inclusion of the community. Sure. So. Um, I think, you know, I look at libraries, I look at, you look at cities like New York and we're kind of not representative of the rest of the urban cities, right? Like there are schools and high rise buildings in New York with rooftop playgrounds. Um, we just weren't, and there are a lot of families living in condominiums. Now we're seeing more of that, but I think definitely there it's, it's changing what you can and can't do in a vertical environment is changing. And I think it's evolving, um, to be a little more broad. Okay, so I gotta. You kind of mentioned something, and this is a good segue because we talked a lot about your product, but maybe let's talk about the process a little bit. And um, you mentioned sort of a building more inclusionary in, into the communities and involving the communities, welcoming the communities. You know, Ben has a lot. Of, Ben's active on Twitter, and it has a lot of. I'll call them haters, NIMBYs. Um, but what's your? Uh, I guess you know your your opinion. We don't have to get too. We can get as deeper. You know. Not or shallow as you want, but I mean, you know, the the process I'm sure today to buy a piece of land, get the entitlements, put it through, you know, the full zoning, get your site application, your excavation and, and building permits. It, it's up to, uh, you know, depending on who you talk to, three, four, five years. I'm sure when you started in the industry, you probably could get it done in 12 months. Um, there's been a lot of, uh, res- you know, a lot of people resisting development in the city. Um, some warranted it, some a lot of it unwarranted. What's what's sort of I guess your it's a two part question. What's your uh, take on just where the city's at with city planning, and and then how do we deal with you know the citizens who are anti development? Um, 
I think I have to give credit to the city. I think I know there's been, I, things are much more, I think every project is really much more complex than it used to be too, which help, you know, it allows you to understand the, the increasing time frame in which you get to get to develop a building. That being said, there's also some unacceptable timelines and there's a lot of frustration from the point of developers and the city. And I sit, uh, on an industry committee with build and the mayor is also um, really active in it. And he's not, he's, he's really not accepting um, the speed of progress and he's pushing, They're pushing his staff very hard to make these improvements. And I really think they are making efforts and I think we're going to see, I think the, uh, the results will show they're coming. It's not going to be overnight, but they're, they're digitizing their processes. There's pilots that are, um, that are out there that are trying to get through the red tape and maybe help things happen a lot more quickly. So they're getting there. It's, it's a process. And um, I mean, how many studies do we need to, to have to show us what the timeline is on getting, getting a project out of the ground? It can be five years, right? It's, yeah. it's not, we're not unique in that way. A lot of cities are the same, but there's also in terms of the, uh, the NIMBYism, there's other there's cities in the States that if you have certain population, you can't, restrict density in some areas. So maybe we need to get a little more harsh like that in certain areas. Um, but I want to be fair. I think uh, in many respects, education is is a part of it, right? And uh, you have to be a responsible builder. We, we have, um, we've learned that, you know, when you, when you go to uh, meetings in, in new communities where you want to develop, obviously there's a lot of opposition and resistance but if you can demonstrate yourself to be a very responsible builder, and not just am I coming to tear up your neighborhood, but I'm coming to bring community economic development. I'm coming, you know, to bring opportunities and to enhance what's already here because there's a lot of beautiful communities that already exist that we become part of. So how, and listening is a huge part of that. So the listening, the education, I think they're two sides of the same coin and uh, we just have to learn to work better together. I know that might sound a little diplomatic, but it works. I mean, so that's why I say innovation. It's not the tech. I mean, it comes down to to some basic skills like good communication and acting responsibly. Um, and I think another expectation from people is that you know corporate social responsibility and and what you're going to expect if you if you're having a new developer come into ta- come into your neighborhood, what are they bringing with them? And it better make you better make it worth my while, even if I'm not living in that building. And what I'm getting out of this is that. Uh Andrea's going for John Tory's uh, spot in the next four years. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, God. That was a very, was a very diplomatic answer. You're right. But you're, you're not, you know, you're bang on 100%. Yeah, but that, that, that kind of leads leads into the next question. I mean, you guys have been on the waterfront for years with uh, with Heinz doing a fantastic job there. We'll get into that. But I wanted to mention, you know, obviously you're, you you won the next, uh, the next phase of, of Regent Park. Um, that's been, you know, I wouldn't say controversial, but it's, it's completely shifted a neighborhood. It's, it's, it's displaced some residents, or at least in the, the early part of it, uh, there was some controversy and then even some buildings that people thought were, were architecturally worth saving. Uh, maybe not ones I would, I would say personally, but, uh, um, in that, you know, that is, uh, quite an undertaking to completely change a neighborhood. And then you've, you've already done that with, uh, with uh, Alexandra Park and, and, and elsewhere. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that that process of, of working with the city, working with, uh, you know, 
uh, affordable housing that's being torn down and, 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 and how you kind of manage that process? Sure. Um, you know, we have, like you said, you mentioned Alexandra Park. We have many uh, partnerships with Toronto Community Housing. Alexandra Park is one of them. We also have Leslie Nymark. And most recently, as you said, Regent Park. So obviously, we were we were delighted to win that RFP. And uh, I, yeah, I, I think it was uh, a little unsettling to some people, but I, I also listened to the, the board meeting um, where they did announce the, win, the, the winning proponent of the bid. And uh, I think for very valid reasons, we earned it. And there was a lot of work put into it. And I think we, you know, one of the things I talked about earlier was ongoing learning. So from our previous uh, communities with Toronto Community Housing, there are absolutely lessons we can take with us. But we also recognize that every community is so unique, right? And the listening is critical. Alexandra Park, I had the opportunity to participate in a lot of the resident association meetings. And one thing I can tell you is we have a lot to learn from those communities from Toronto Community Housing. When I, you know, we talked about innovation before and we have more single occupancy dwellings, I think, in the city than ever before. And as a result of that, we have a lot of loneliness and isolation. When I go into a community like Alexandra Park, and I see the actual community and engagement with the residents that live there, they have something to teach us because we have buildings where people aren't talking to the, each other in the elevators, right? So so I think um, there's recipro reciprocal learning, obviously, um, and it's a tremendous opportunity to continue that revitalization and continue upon the outstanding work that Daniels has done. What would be the one thing that you could share with us in terms of your plans that may differ from the Daniels plans? Mm, that, um, you know, a, a big, a, a big highlight is um, the financing we put towards the community economic development and listening to people from the residents, you know, the association, neighborhood association, Regent Park on the uh, board meeting. They're just so thrilled because I I'm not saying this is different from Daniel's because I think they really got that. Um, but they really are happy to see the financial contribution to the programming and the community economic development to bring opportunity to that community. Um, so I, I think we're just building upon something already great. I don't uh, really think there were mistakes. I think it was just another an opportunity. Yeah. Will you, will you guys try to push densities more there? I, 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 I just look at it and say, well, some of these buildings could be a lot taller than they, than they are currently. Well, we're going to get into the details as soon as we get more intimate with the, uh, with the residents there. And that's starting, obviously, we've had one meeting so far. So that's just getting off the ground. And uh, a lot of it is going to be co-created, I would say. Yeah. What I think the next question was, and I think it's interesting that you guys are so involved in, in the Regent Park development, Alexander Park, but on the complete other end of the spectrum of the stuff you're doing on the waterfront with maybe some of the most uh, high-end luxurious units that I'm personally excited to, uh, to see come to fruition. But, um, you know, how is that progressing? And, and uh, are you guys disappointed that the sidewalk labs pulled out? Mm. You know, one door closes, another opens, right? right. There's my there's my uh, glass half full <laughs> attitude. But I think, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of big vision there. Maybe it was too large, too expensive. Um, 
but the underlying objectives were good, the innovation were good, but I think the opportunity that awaits us with 12 acres is exciting. And what's going to happen with it? There's, uh, I think you're probably well aware, um, an RFQ at the end of the month, they say, and then at the end of January. And um, in April, the spring sometime, the RFP will come out for what they're, what they're going to see for, the, um, for that land. So my understanding is um, technology won't be the focus of it. It'll def, you know, be a part, but they're going to look at some of the real needs of the city, such as um, the seniors even, and the affordability piece, which, which are critical, and uh, maybe even integrating some public space into the residential. So I think it, maybe it'll prove to show some exciting new models. And I think it, you know, I think as a result, it caused us maybe to think a little, a little differently. Um, but I think something amazing will happen with that with that land, for sure. And as, as for our development at the waterfront, um, as you said, you're excited. We have our um, our final building now. It's been about a thousand condominium homes there. And then with the first building, it was a bit of um, a market testing. So we 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 had you know small, medium, large size suites, and we aired on the side of the. Um, with caution, the side of some smaller, and we saw um, that there was the demand actually for larger suites. So with each subsequent um, building, we increased the number of larger units, and um, and we there's there's definitely a market for that. And uh, the average suite, the average selling price of Aqualuna right now. I mean, I should just, well, Ben probably knows. I'm not going to ask him to guess. <laughs> but it's it's $2 million. So What is that per foot, approximately? You know, I knew someone was going to ask me that. So <laughs> I have it. I have it ready. <laughs> it's about fourteen fifty. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So what's, t tell us about the big unit, sir, because I'm interested. A lot of times you see these three-bed these three bed plus den, you know, almost 2,000 square foot units, and you might see them in a neighborhood where there's, Sort of like a you know an affluent neighborhood and you know people want to stay for example in forest hill you know there's the north drive building and i think it's a lot of downsizers from that neighborhood wanted to stay in the neighborhood uh, i've seen it you've seen it other places at young and st Clair. uh you see it in lawrence park you've seen it at young and edmonton you know um but there's no real low-rise residential development around there so who's, who's your, what's your profile or so what's the demographic uh, of the buyer yeah. for the big units <sighs> I would say people that are, we, we call it right sizing, right? They're not downsizing. They might be, you know, seniors, empty nesters. Um, they need a, they don't necessarily want less space even, but maybe more, more convenience um, in their lifestyle. And we say like, obviously it's easier to sell smaller suites, right? But for that, definitely at, at a waterfront, um, beautiful property like that, you don't want to just take the easiest and fastest way, right? It's not the right use for the, for the, for the property there. So we right. really implemented, it's not so easy to sell the larger suites, but um, there's a demand. It takes a little more time. And right now I would say there's no one selling more end user luxury product than us. So we have uh, the well, the signature suites, Aqualuna, Eden Bridge, Royal Bayview and Chateau. I mean, they're all really large suites for people that are right sizing, as we say. Um, right. so like we talked, we talked, we talked about the retirement homes. There's look at our demographics, right? Look what's look what's coming. 
Yeah, I've been shocked at how well you guys have uh, sold large suites in, in some of these locations where where I probably wouldn't have, if I was working with a client, uh, recommended, uh, you know, that percentage of uh, of larger units. It just, it just shows, uh, um, you know, how much you guys can cater to the end user and, and provide them a suite that they want. I, I have some clients say, well, why, why can't we get what Tridel's getting? Well, I say, well, Tridel has a premium. <laughs> you can get a premium over anyone else in the market because of their uh, their ability yes. to deliver and to deliver uh, a, a quality quality product. So yeah. you talked a little bit about being, you know, on the waterfront in Thornhill, Etobicoke. Um, you know, I, I, I one of the buildings I was really impressed with was the Renaissance of Richmond Hill. That was one of the first uh, one of your projects that I, I visited. Just you know, just a stunning project. Um, I used to live right up right up there in Richmond Hill. But why why no expansion outside the GTA? Have you have you considered it? Yes, yeah, so we. We talk about it, you know, every now and then. We've, we've had many conversations about it. And then we just look at what we have here in Toronto at the moment and what our existing and upcoming portfolio will be. And really, when you think of what's in Toronto, you look at the economy, you look at the demographics and the policy. Um, there's really no other city that replicates that, right? Supporting the dense, the, um, the density that we're, we're required here. We look at the immigration you know, all the people that wanted to come to Toronto, they're still going to want to come to Toronto when they can, I believe. So that, you know, the, we get 100,000 um, new people here a year, and I think they're trying to increase that to 400,000. So we're going to have to accommodate them. And uh, there's still like a $600,000 gap, I think, between a new condo and a, sing a single family. So it's still the affordable option, even though it's not so affordable. And I don't want to lose sight of that. You have the $2 million suites at the waterfront, front, but you have partnerships with Toronto Community Housing where you do demonstrate you can't forget the affordability piece and you show that market and affordable can work beautifully together. So um, it, that's just a piece I want to emphasize that, um, you know, the market's made out of many submarkets, right? You have those large suites and then you have, uh, then you have just different pockets of the city where, and that's, I guess, a form of being, um, future-proof as a company, right? You can't just bank on one type of demographic and one one niche area. Yeah. On the waterfront, you did a building that had a bunch of uh, affordable units or... or yeah. About, about that, because you, you've got these super expensive waterfront... Yeah, yeah. Got, I think um, that, that was an arrangement with Artscape, and I, I can't remember recall the specific details, but there's a certain amount of homes that were provided uh, um, to artists in the city through Artscape. And uh, I think you'll see more of that because when you think, again, what we've lost in the during uh, the pandemic and arts are part of what make a city vibrant, right? So we have to yeah. allow for affordable spaces for artists to live in our city. I wish that stuff got published uh, more and, and discussed more. It, it's, you know, you, all you hear is a rest of, a restaurant, Gretzky's gets torn down or a bar or something and developers are destroying the city. There's no room for artists yet. They never seem to, you know, to, to, you know, talk about all these great things that some of these developers are doing in partnerships and, uh, and charitable donations and, 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 yeah. and well, thank you. Section yeah. 37 fees that are going to community benefits and, you know, just think of Regent Park, what that looked like before, any of those projects went in and now, you know, I take my daughter to the park there, yeah. right? You know, like who would have, you know, I 
sounds terrible, but who would have taken their kid from the yeah. beaches to go to Regent Park to hang yeah. out? I mean, before all this came together. So I think it's a, a it's tremendous, uh, you know, community uh, building, um, you know, triumph for our city. And, and I wish that we talked more about it. And I, I was even, I even got into it with, uh, not really got into it, but commented on, you know, one of our prominent urbanists that write about our market. He just, you know, drives around the city and takes pictures and then just, you know, dumps on all the projects, you know, like, I know if you once in a while talked about the good things that these developers are doing at least, you know, 70, 30, (laughs) instead of, you know, 95, five in terms of uh, being negative in terms of uh, what the development industry is doing. Thousands and thousands of jobs that you guys are creating for people. Right. I agree with you. I really agree with you. And I think, um, I, I spoke to uh, Build about that, and I think we we said we have to make more effort at showing what this does and creating employment, even right when it comes. Like it's just we don't. There's not enough emphasis on the good side of the story. So I, yeah, point well taken. We we should all try to do that a little bit better. Amplify. Yeah. Steve, you had a question? Yeah. So um, <laughs> we talked a little bit about. Um, the technology in in, uh, in the suites and your uh, involvement in that. What about um, the discussion revolving the environmental impact of all glass towers? Has your firm yes. given any consideration to changing the way you cloud your project? Well, I'm happy to say we don't have any all glass towers. So we we really look at supplementing glass. And the the community we were just talking about at the waterfront, we have metal and glazing that supplements it. And um, we have 18,000 green suites since 2005, all at various levels of LEED certification. So that's, you know, we made a decision to be a green builder. And uh, I think before the demand was really there, I mean, one of the things I love most is going to focus groups of our home buyers, right? Or residents, um, people that live in our buildings, not necessarily buyers. And you ask them, how many of you bought because the building's green or chose to live in it because it's green? And uh, I've just seen the shift from nobody putting their hand up to literally like three quarters of the room putting their hand up. Really? And obvi- yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, it comes at a price. You can't just put up a sustainable building. I, that was amazing. People think you can put up a sustainable building for the same amount or less. And I was like, you can't, yeah. <laughs> you can't, you got, there's, there, but there's going to be savings in the end. So, you know, why do you put in a better boiler pump if it's going to cost the developer a little more? Because the person living in the home is going to pay a little bit less. Right. And, um, but those are the intangibles. That's your brand. Right. Yes, it's going to cost us a little more, but but what's the end result? So glass towers, um, we don't we don't do all glass, and we talk about things such as um, you know increasing glass in the living and dining areas, reducing it maybe in the bedrooms where people are spending less time. Just doing smart decision making like that. Think of how you live, right? Like this is just audio, but I can see windows behind you. You probably you know. It's nice to be spending the majority of your time in a space that has natural light. Yeah, actually, we just moved to a new house, and uh, it's an older house, and the windows on the main floor are a lot smaller than where we came from. And my wife has a number of big plants, trees, and stuff, and they're not doing well here. So it's oh. kind of sad. Like they were flourishing in our old place to the point when we were listing the house, people asked if they could buy them, and we're like, oh no, we're bringing gosh. them with us, and it was this big to do to to get them over here, and now they're they're kind of struggling because uh, it's not as 
not as much yeah. natural light, which is sad. Yeah. I mean, we, we spend what, I don't know, not used to be 90% of our time indoors and yeah. now it's probably a little bit higher. So, um, yeah, any, any, it's that, um, what do you call it? Um, biomimicry, right? Anything that resembles getting elements of nature into your home is so important and for our overall well-being. So, and the, and the indoor air quality is critical. Absolutely. We've, got, we've, uh, we've covered quite a bit today, but um, before we move on maybe to our final uh, segment, which we like to call the rapid fire, is there anything we've missed? Is there, uh, is there anything that, that you wanted to talk about? Is there a special project coming up you wanted to mention? Or is, um, you know, or, or maybe you have a question for Ben. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know we were, if we had time, we'd talk a little bit. We talked about a smart building um, and talking about a smart city, right, on a larger scale. And I think I just wanted to address maybe that that definition is just so varied, right? People have m many different interpretations of what a smart city means. And uh, we were working with uh, a professor of engineering at U of T on a database of concrete and steel in the city because that doesn't exist. So they're looking at how do you plan better moving forward unless you know where everything is that exists right now. And there's no, um, there's no indices of that. So I think that was really interesting. But what I really loved about this, um, this, this woman it's, uh, her name is Shoshana, Shoshana Sachs, and uh, she's at U of T. And she had an article talking about smart cities and saying how she's not buying into it. And it kind of relates to what I was saying earlier about the innovation. She said, you can have like a garbage can with all the sensors and it's digital, but at the end of the day, someone's still got to take out the trash. So, you know, and we were talking about waterfront and, or sorry, yeah, waterfront with um, sidewalk. And when we think of the smart city and we think of what the technology piece can be, I think it's easy to fall in love with, right? And you have to think practically. You have to think of, she pointed out things in, in her article, such as the lifespan of technology compared to infrastructure, right? Look how, look how aged our, our laptops and our phones get in two years. And a bridge is, is built to last 100 years, right? And a tunnel even longer. So, so who's going to, how are we going to support and finance the upkeep of all this technology? And of course you have the privacy issues and the, and the, you know, the safety issues. Um, so when I think of a smart city and I think of innovation, I would just emphasize to be cautious with what you fall in love with and what you invest in. And I, some of the stuff is really not, um, not the sexy stuff, right? But things like AI that we're talking about, when you talk about people getting mortgages for their homes, and now people are talking about ethical AI, right? So how do you remove the subjectivity of the human element to allow more people to get mortgage and financing for their homes? That, to me, is exciting innovation. And that's smart, right? Things like loneliness we talked about. You know, I think there's that famous story about the Chicago fires where the people that died in their homes were the people that didn't have community around them. So again, single occupancy dwellings, um, COVID, lockdown. How many people are in their homes that don't have any connections, right? And what, what risk is that imposing? So build innovation around that. Um, because at the end of the day, all the things that I think we love about cities, right? The parks that we've learned to love during COVID, um, you know, just sidewalks, like, 
all these all these things that make a city vibrant um they're not they require people right not just pieces of technology um, if you could get one piece of advice to uh to the mayor or or i mean i'm, I'm sure you do in the, in the build committee meetings but you know what's the one thing that you are advocating for if you had to you know you've got some great ideas and i'm sure we could talk about this for another hour if we wanted to maybe on andrew Del's auto toronto on the construction part two we'll cover we'll cover more of this but um oh don't tell me don't be careful be careful what you ask for <laughs> no for sure we're gonna have you back if you'll um, do it but is there one thing that you're like this is you know if i could nail this it would lead yeah. to yeah um, I think all the build, I think most developers, um, larger developers like us, we want to do the right thing. And we see affordability as being such an important piece of our city and help us do that because we, we have to make the numbers work as developers. I think you're right. The developers get looked at as the big, you know, the, the big greedy developer with the deep pockets and, uh, you know, there's a cost to what we do, and unfortunately, the home buyers uh, bear the burden of that cost. And when, if, if you want to deliver affordable, you're going to have to give some relief. So I think I think there are, I think people are thinking that through, and how do we make that work? And I always use, you know, my dad's favorite city was San Francisco, and I look at San Francisco now. They have more dogs than children, right? So how do you have a complete city if you don't have a complete population of people, right? If you just have one type of person. That's not an, that's not a beautiful city to me. So, you know, just, I went to three different high schools because not because I was kicked out. It's I not exciting. Say, how many, how many times did you get expelled? No, that's I, my kids think, yeah, they, they think that's exciting, but it's really because I wanted a diverse school, right. With representation from all walks of life. And I found that, but I just, I, I mean, that serves well, a, homo, a homogenous setting, whether it's in a company, whether it's in a city, um, you know, it's not a healthy thing. So we can't, we, we got to make sure we don't turn out like that. Yeah. What do you That's think? I, I, not, just on to, I just, I'm so curious because this whole like idea of affordable housing, it's almost like become cliche or it's, like you said, sexy. It's like, yeah, we're going to do it. But, but, but I don't know. I mean, it's a deep question, but like how, I mean, other than, then, you know, the city either eliminating the section 37, lowering DCs, donating land i mean i'm trying to think of the things that the city controls right like they control taxes they control uh the, the policies of parking policies and procedures in, in which you uh obtain the permits so like you know that could those those costs could either be eliminated or the speed could go up but um as, yeah. you know how, like how else i mean do well, you see I this because unfortunately like you said is you know developers they need to build but they need to build and, and show profit or they won't get financing because not from the financing yeah. side of things. If the and building also, doesn't promote a 15% IRR, you, the bank's not giving you the money. So they have, you have to make money. And if you build everything affordable, you won't make any money and it won't be profitable. No one will do it. So yeah. what's, what's the secret, yeah. you know, within well, that formula? I think they're doing, they're, they're on the right path. I mean, we're seeing some, um, some land, being used, being opened up to allow for affordable. So that's that's a step in the right direction for sure. Um, but like you said, and we want to build it right, right? We want to build it well for the environment too. And that's not, mm -hmm. that doesn't come cheap. So there has to be a way that we can work together to do well, to do well and do good at the same time. 
it's it's not an either or. I say that often. We got to do them. We got to do them both. Yes, because we are a business and you have to be profitable, but you also have to do good. So help, help us get there. Well, that's a good that's a good spot to end it off before we go into our our rapid fire. We always like to ask if you uh, you know yes or no or you know five six uh, words at, at best. We try to. Uh, um, we did give you the questions in advance. Some of our, our, our folks, we don't, do not give them any questions. Yeah, Ben, we got to stop doing this. We can't give away the rapid fire questions because it's supposed yeah, to be yeah. like, you know, think on your toes. So actually, Andrew's not going to like this, but I, I added a couple Changed of it. surprises in there. Yes, yes. Good That's job. Fine. Good job. That's fine. Give me what you got. Give me your best shot. Okay, Steve, you want to, you want to, you want me to go first or? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So prior to the pandemic, did you think uh, Airbnb was a problem in your building? Yes and no. Conceptually good, executed poorly. I think home sharing is not a bad idea. I think it hasn't been done right. Well, I th- the, the new regulation, sorry, you said six words. The new regulations are great because I don't want to take inventory away from homeowners. But I think yeah. you should also be able to to, to supplement your income a little bit. So yeah, a little bit taboo for a developer to say, but it's the truth, done poorly. Yeah. In 2021, should we have more bike lanes or subway lines approved? I have to pick one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're ready to put you on the hot seat. I knew, I, knew, I, knew the curve, I knew the curve ball would work. Bikes, I have to pick one, bikes. Okay. Okay. Um, my fa- by the way, my father would never have agreed with me on that. He liked parking spaces and lots of cars. He just didn't like, he, he, you know, we, we had many discussions about bike lanes. <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, we won't get it. We don't want to, uh, we don't want the, the war on car people. And we don't want the cyclists coming out at my Twitter account. So we'll, uh, <laughs> Um, to your knowledge, have you ever had a problem with vacant suites in any of your building? No, you mean like the ghost condos yeah, where? Yeah, just yeah, just investors buying up suites and just keeping no, them vacant. We we have very little offshore buyers, like less than five percent. Nice. True or false? The average new condo price in twenty thirty will be over two thousand dollars a square foot. Downtown Toronto. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Downtown Toronto. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> here's, here's one I think is a good question here. Everything always comes back in style. So when are you going to put carpet back in downtown condos? <laughs> Never. <laughs> you know what? We used to have a, a, a piece of art in our office that was like a carpet on the wall. And I mean, if anyone's listening from our office, I would see things fly into that and never come out. Like we we fumigate it out of the office. It's just no indoor air quality. I'm not a fan. Never. <laughs> what has been the one single activity you have missed the most in the last eleven months? Live music. What's your What's your favorite kind of live music? I would like to go to. Uh, um, there's a little place I think it's called uh, 360, like where they have like blues blues bands or jazz. I just like to go to a little hole in the wall and listen to live music. Oh yeah, yeah, it sounds amazing. 
okay, so you're looking you're looking at your budget, and it's coming down to two items. You can either spend more on the exterior architecture or the interior finish. What what would you spend it on? That's another tough one. Um, anything that improves the human experience, I would say, and the Sorry. and protects and protects the environment. So I think I think you can find a way to do both. But I know architecture is important, but beauty, not just for beauty's sake. I think it's got to be um, functional and, uh, yeah. I can't pick. I can't pick. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're waffling. You're waffling. Sorry. Okay. Okay. Here's an easy one, here's an easy one for you. Are the Raptors going to make the playoffs this year? No. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't think so either. Oh, beach, beach or cottage? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, I happened to uh, we had uh, my grandfather had a cottage on Wasega, in Wasega Beach so to me they they're they're intertwined so that's a tough question for me um, <laughs> and I would say um, you know home is where the heart is as long as it's tried out heart no. <laughs> well, we'll leave the last question to Steve last one for you Steve um, other than your dad, who has been one person or is there a group of people who have been, uh, you know, great mentors or influential in your career that you'd want to uh, recognize or, or thank? Hmm. There's quite a few. Um, I've had, uh, I've had internally at an organization, some mentors as well. And, uh, they're part of our executive team now. And, uh, you mean personally name them? They've been really great. They've been really great mentors, and I've really grown up with them, right? So uh, from the time, I always tease Jim Ritchie. I said, you did my first performance review, and we talked about, you know, financial health, physical health. We talked about, you know, everything, and uh, just because of my last name, right? My dad always told me, don't be known by your last name. Be known by your first. And uh, Jim Ritchie, he treated me just like Andrea and like anybody else and was just as tough on me and um, equally respectful when it was due. So yeah, he's been a great mentor. Oh, that's, that's a great line. That's a great line. I think we'll, that's, a, that's a great place to, to, to end it off. If someone wants to, to find you, you know, what's, what's Tridel's website? Do you, do you encourage people to follow you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Where, where, where should they find you? I do. Uh, Tridel is tridel.com. Um, and there's also the tridelgroup.com for the, the group of companies that we talked about. And I am on social media. It's uh, Andrea DZ, D-E-E-Z-E-E. -E -E. I'm on all of them. I don't, I'm not equally active on all of them, but I'm on them. Um, so, yeah, I'm happy. And I think uh, the more people reach out, we always get our best ideas from, you know, from, out, from equally outside and inside. But we, I, we've also solved some challenges and turned uh, – some unhappy people into raving fans. So I'm open. If you got something That's to say, cool. I'm here to listen. Nice. Very cool. Nice. Okay. Well, listen, thank you so much for doing this. It was an absolute pleasure. You've been a phenomenal guest and I'm dead serious. You know, if you'd uh, consider coming on again and, in, in uh, on a future episode, we'd love to have you. I'm sure there's lots we could talk about and um, it's been a lot of fun. So thank Thanks. you. You guys are easy to talk to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.